Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the treatment of brain tumors with Dr. Nicholas Blondin. Dr. Blondin is an assistant professor in clinical neurology at the Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. Nick, let's talk a little bit about brain tumors. I think brain tumors are one of those tumors that's really difficult for people to understand in the sense that there are tumors that start in the brain, and then there are tumors that go to the brain, and those are two very different buckets. Is that right? Um, Yes and no. Okay. Tell me about that. Yes, they're different uh, in terms of them being different diseases, but no, they're any diagnosis of any kind of brain tumor is terrifying for a person, and both um, types of tumors cause neurological disabilities, can really um, you know, dramatically impact someone's life. And treatments, um, some treatment modalities could be similar between the two different types. Right. But certainly when you talk to your doctor about having a brain tumor, it's good for you to know whether this is a brain tumor that started in your brain or whether this is a tumor that went to your brain from someplace else. Yes, I would agree with that. So I want to keep our discussion pretty clean today um, and talk primarily about tumors that start in the brain. That sounds reasonable. Those are called primary brain tumors. Primary brain tumors. So tell us a little bit more about those primary brain tumors. What are these primary brain tumors? What are the different types? Who gets them? How common are they? That kind of stuff. Sure. So primary brain tumors are tumors that arise in the brain or structures that uh, surround the brain. Uh, Brain tumors can be classified as benign or malignant. Benign brain tumors are most commonly uh, meningiomas. Meningiomas are tumors that arise on the lining of the brain, the meninges, and they can grow inward and cause pressure on the brain, resulting in symptoms. And other less common types of benign brain tumors would be a schwannoma or acoustic neuroma. That's a tumor that forms on the nerve um, that uh, is used for hearing. And there are uh, some other uh, very uncommon ones that can affect the eye and and, uh, other neurological structures. For malignant brain tumors, the most common malignant brain tumor is called glioblastoma or GBM. Malignant brain tumors arise in the brain tissue itself and can cause destruction, essentially like a stroke-like damage or acquired brain injury. And they can spread throughout the brain and cause disability in that manner. And uh, there are less uh, less aggressive kinds of uh, malignant brain tumors called astrocytomas, which um, progress more slowly or have a better response to treatment. In terms of who gets these, anyone can get a brain tumor. In fact, chil- for children, brain tumors are the most common type of pediatric cancer. Um, and there's a lot of efforts going towards uh, treatment in, in kids these days. For adults, the incidence of brain tumors increases with age for benign brain tumors. And for malignant brain tumors, also the risk increases with age, but there's less of a uh, relationship. Pretty much anyone can get GBM from uh, teenagers or children out to 
people in their 90s. Uh, I've cared for patients that have pretty much run that entire gamut for their ages. So how common is a primary malignant brain tumor like a a glioblastoma multiforme or GBM? Right. So fortunately for GBM, it's a rare cancer uh, type. Um, I think the incidence is around three per 100,000 people. Um, So in Connecticut, there would be approximately 100 newly diagnosed cases per year. Um, The incidence uh, is slightly higher in men compared to women. Uh, Again, it runs uh, the full range of ages, but it's uh, most common in kind of like the 60s or 70s uh, age population. And so, you know, we we talk a lot about, you know, how do you know when you might have a brain tumor? Uh, One would think that, you know, you'd have symptoms, right? So headache or something like that, right? The most common symptom is actually a seizure. So an otherwise healthy adult who has a first-time seizure, um, would that likely indicates the presence of a brain tumor. Headaches on their own uh, actually is, would not really be a, a common symptom of brain tumor um, because migraine headaches or other just type of benign headaches are uh, very common medical problems that people have. Uh, but headaches along with other neurological disabilities like weakness or memory loss or cognitive impairment, that could suggest uh, presence of a tumor. So if you have a seizure and you've never had seizures before and you don't have epilepsy, that might be a good reason to go and see your doctor. Yes. Well, seizures are very scary when they occur. Uh, generally, EMS services are called and the patient's brought to an emergency room and their imaging is done like a CAT scan that will look to see if a uh, brain tumor is present. And so what if it is? Then what happens? At that point, um, Further testing needs to be done. So more advanced imaging, like an MRI scan, should be done to uh, try to determine, uh, you know, the exact place the brain tumor is. Is it in the brain tissue or is it in the lining of the brain? And then um, is this a primary brain tumor or is it one of those secondary kind of tumors, like you mentioned, caused from another kind of tumor in the body? So some other testing is done usually in the patient when they're hospitalized to determine what this could be and make a plan for uh, some kind of biopsy or a surgery. So so would they, if somebody came in and had a seizure and they did a CT scan and it showed a mass and they did an MRI and it was in the brain, um, so then they would go looking for another primary source, breast, colon, lung, thyroid, someplace. And if they didn't find it, would they think that this was a primary brain tumor and then do a biopsy of the brain? Yes. So that's that's how the treatment plan would go. Um, a neurosurgeon would be consulted and involved in the case and determine uh, what kind of surgical procedure should be performed. So in some cases, depending on where the tumor is located, a complete removal of the tumor could be feasible. In other situations, only a biopsy could be done. And in Certain more rare situations, like if the tumor's in the brainstem, no biopsy is really can be safely done. But it would it's best to at, try to at least obtain s- tissue through a biopsy or resection to know for sure what the diagnosis is. So it sounds like these are often diagnosed with a surgical biopsy as opposed to a needle biopsy. Is that right? Yeah. Again, it depends on the location in the brain where the tumor is, I would say. Yeah. 
But I guess, you know, when we think about most tumors and that we talk about on this show, we often diagnose this with a needle biopsy. I would think that the skull kind of gets in the way of doing brain biopsy some of the time. Uh, well, uh, it turns out it's not that difficult for neurosurgeons to make a small hole through the skull. True, so but I have for a told, needle. Right. If this lo- tumor location is near the surface of the brain, there could be arteries or veins there, which could be damaged by a needle. And so doing a um, larger biopsy or a resection where the, su- the surgeon can see with their eye where they're going, uh, it's, a lot, it's a safer approach. All right. So once uh, a biopsy is obtained... Um, and you find out that it is a GBM, then what happens? Well, then at that point, again, we, I, you know, we confer with the surgeon and are in a multidisciplinary team with a, a medical oncologist or neuro-oncologist, a neurosurgeon, radiation doctor, pathologist, and a neuroradiologist. We all look together at the, uh, at the case, see what was done, determine if more surgery should be done, was this was a, a complete surgery done initially? Then, if that was the case, we would move on towards other kinds of treatment, generally radiation and chemotherapy, um, and again look at the molecular findings with the tumor uh, and work with the pathologist on that to identify the optimal treatment strategy for a patient. So, how do you know? Um, that chemotherapy is going to work in a patient. I mean, we've we've talked a little bit on the show in other shows about drugs not crossing the blood-brain barrier. And presumably, chemotherapy is given into the blood. So how does it get to the brain exactly? Right. So in glioblastoma or GBM, there is a big unmet need for new treatments. So there's essentially only two chemotherapies that are FDA approved for treatment of GBM. The first uh, treatment is temozolomide or TMZ. TMZ is uh, pills that are taken, absorbed into the bloodstream, and then can easily cross the blood-brain barrier and go into the tumor cells. They damage DNA in GBM cells and can slow down tumor cell growth in that manner. Now, unfortunately, TMZ is not uh, highly effective to treat these tumors, so the tumors often can have a resistance to them or have a recurrence. Generally, it's after several months of treatment. And the second chemotherapy is bevacizumab or Avastin. That is a biological therapy that absorbs a hormone called VEGF that is involved in uh, blood vessel growth around the tumors. So the Avastin can slow down blood vessel growth and cause some shrinkage of the tumors, but tumors, again, can become resistant to it and and then have subsequent regrowth. So... So what's the prognosis for GBMs given the fact that systemic therapy may be effective but only for a few months? Right. So the, the prognosis uh, will depends on a few factors, the most important of which is age for the patient. So older patients generally fare worse, um, unfortunately. Uh, for someone in their 80s or um, really like from 70s and above, it may be less than a year of survival. For younger uh, folks... Could be longer, could be out to like two years. Uh, maybe f- someone that had an extensive surgery and good response to treatment, even three years. There's a molecular feature in tumors called MGMT status, and tumors that have a certain kind of MGMT status are more responsive to treatment than, than the other kind. And that's an important uh, kind of thing that can be used to give a patient a prognosis, but it doesn't impact what treatments they really would receive um, these days. 
So it sounds like the prognosis is still not great with these primary brain tumors. We uh, certainly have a long way to go. Um, there's one additional treatment that's come along in the last several years for treatment that's tumor treating field technology or alternating electrical fields. So a device called the Optune uh, system can be used by the patient where they wear these arrays on their scalp that creates an electrical field, which also can slow down cell division. It works in combination with temozolomide or TMZ chemotherapy, and uh, patients can use that in addition to the chemo to try to get enhanced tumor cell killing. Does it work? Uh, it increases the time until the relapse and overall survival of patients By how uh, in much? a large clinical trial. For patients, um, newly diagnosed patients that received standard radiation therapy and the chemotherapy, usage of the device with TMZ increased progression-free survival a little under three months and overall survival of patients by about five months. Uh, increasing from about 19 months to 24 months survival. So on the one hand, uh, still, like, I wish there was more time. On the other hand, compared to other cancer therapies, giving, you know, a few more months is, is movement in the right direction. And there are certain groups of patients that seem to get even more benefit with the Optune device than others. And particularly, again, this MGMT status, uh, called MGMT methylated, patients in the study did substantially better increased survival almost a year uh, for those patients. So what about the cost of the device? Right. So the device has a high list price, um, but patients can work with the company. Uh, generally, insurances will cover it. It's now considered standard of care for treatment or NCCN category one to use the device with TMZ after radiation. So um, much like any other cancer therapies, there's a high list price, but patients generally don't have to um, have a huge out-of-pocket cost to get the system. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about treatment of brain tumors with my guest, Dr. Nicholas Blondin. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Nicholas Blondin. We're talking about treatment of brain tumors, and in particular, treatment of malignant primary brain tumors. Often, these are what's called GBMs, or glioblastoma multiforme. These are aggressive brain cancers uh, that start in the brain, often in older people. But Nick, you were mentioning that, you know, the treatments that we have, we have a couple of forms of chemotherapy. We now have this device that might prolong uh, progression-free survival a little bit in these patients. Um, you know, the prognosis still is not great. Um, 
And when we think about cancers of the brain and what they do, they take up space in the brain. They push on structures in the brain. One would think that there would be functional disability associated with having the cancer there, but also that that might have functional disability when people go in the brain and take chunks of it out or or put drugs in there that cause effects in the brain or radiate the brain. So what about that functional disability? Certainly. So the location of tumor is a critical component. Um, the brain has certain uh, regions that control movement, sensation, vision, language abilities, uh, memory. And it, it turns out there are some parts of the brain that really um, don't have critical functions. So in particular, the right frontal lobe of the brain or the right temporal lobe of the brain um, often don't have critical functions for people. So tumors could arise in these locations, uh, cause a seizure or some other kind of neurological symptom that leads to their discovery. And then after surgery, the patient has really no neurological disabilities. And then in other cases, if the tumor forms in the region where the motor uh, neurons are, a person could have um, movement disabilities akin to a stroke, and that may not reverse after surgery. It turns out a lot of this, to me, is just, just seems sporadic. It just happens where the tumor starts growing. So it's never of a fortunate thing to get a brain tumor, but if you were to get one, there are certain regions of the brain where it's much, you know, much better for treatment than other areas. And so how does that play into decision-making in terms of how aggressive to be with the treatment, what kind of treatment to uh, go for? Because one would think that, you know, after the decision to go through whatever therapy we're going to go through, whether it's surgery or chemotherapy or radiation therapy, that those side effects from that treatment, um, the deficits, for example, feeling like you've had a stroke on one side of your body, for some patients may be worse than the disease itself. How do you factor in uh, the side effects of treatment and quality of life into decision making? Right. So that's really... That's what I believe is the most important part of my job as a neuro-oncologist. So I, I look at a patient, what their diagnosis is. I know what all the, st the standard treatments are. And you know, as we've discussed, there unfortunately isn't a, a huge number of treatments available. And then I, I look at the patient, talk to them, talk to their caregiver, determine what kind of disabilities they have and what, what makes sense for treatment, like how aggressive should we, should we plan to be here with treatment. So treatment can have side effects. Um, with radiation treatment, patients may experience fatigue, loss of appetite, um, feel run down. And with chemotherapy, patients could experience nausea, uh, again, fatigue. And for some patients, this those symptoms really could impair their quality of life. Like if a person has mild disabilities but is still uh, able to keep working, the patient may opt to not receive chemotherapy um, because they want to try to maintain some normalcy for their life for a period of time. So I work with a, with patients and determine what the best treatment is for them at that point. And obviously that things change over time. The disease um, could worsen. Things may change. In some cases, uh, things stabilize. Patients patients do well. We I hold further therapy and we just kind of do monitoring with MRIs periodically to see um, to see where things are at. So it has to be highly individualized and I certainly take into account what the patient perceives their quality of life to be 
whether it makes sense to continue with aggressive treatment, whether we should pull back and think more about treatment that supports a patient and like provides um, like comfort for the patient and, uh, you know, plan out care based on that. You know, the other the other aspect that I, I want to touch on is brain tumors in children. Um, because uh, prior to the break, you said that brain tumors were one of the most common cancers affecting kids. And, you know, when we talked about glioblastoma, we said that, you know, prognosis was one, maybe two, maybe three years. Um, and that, too, with potential side effects of surgery and radiation and so on. Tell me about what are the common brain cancers that occur in kids and the prognosis that they face. Right. So kids, um, like adults, can experience both benign brain tumors and malignant brain tumors. For children, the most malignant brain tumor, or the most common malignant brain tumor, is called medulloblastoma. They occur in the back part of the brain, uh, generally called the cerebellum, and they can cause difficulties with uh, walking or other kinds of movements. They're generally picked up if uh, a younger child develops balance problems. The treatment for them is variable. It depends a lot on the molecular uh, features of the tumor. A lot of progress has been made in the last several years um, in terms of classifying medulloblastoma into four different types. A few of the types are highly responsive to treatment, and patients can go into long-term remissions or be um, nearly cured. And other types are much more aggressive and don't respond well to treatment. So that's uh, medulloblastoma, again, is, is a common uh, malignant tumor. And another common type is called DIPG, or diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. That's a brain tumor that um, will grow in the brainstem of a, of a patient and cause difficulties with movement and facial functions like talking, swallowing, um, and eye movements. It's a highly disabling tumor that... Um, really doesn't have any standard of care treatment. It's known to be highly aggressive. Uh, radiation is um, a standard treatment. And there's there's a lot of clinical trials and research that is going on to try to determine uh, better treatments for that disease. So how common are these in kids? I mean, I know you told me that they're the, one of the most common tumors affecting children. Thank goodness most children don't get cancer. But how common are they? I uh, I'm not certain on the uh, exact um, incidence, but again, they are they are rare in the general population. But amongst childhood cancers, they're one of the most common cancers, along with uh, leukemia. Yeah. So, so let's take a step back and say this: for most of the brain cancers that you've talked about so far today, um, with the potential ex- exception of good forms of medulloblastoma. They all sounded like they had a pretty lousy prognosis. Is that right? Well, for again, for benign brain tumors, they may be able to be removed with surgery. Right, but for the malignant ones. Yeah, malignant malignant tumors admittedly are they're difficult. Um, they're generally felt not to be curable. The goal of our treatment is just put them into an inactive state. And my goal is to keep my patients as functional as possible, like try to make make sure that the patient has the best quality of life that they can. There are some patients that have an exceptional response to treatment. So with radiation, chemotherapy, uh, Optune device, or clinical trial um, products, patients, patients have um, you know, an exceptional outcome. 
So an example of this would be the, the first two patients that received the Duke polio virus treatment for GBM are both still alive several years after receiving that treatment when they had a recurrent or relapsed glioblastoma. So in those two particular patients, that the treatment worked. Uh, and then for a number of other patients that were in the study, the treatment did not work. So, you know, the hope is with every patient I treat initially that they will be an exceptional responder, that they'll be one of the ones that has very long-term survival from GBM. And I, I think that's the best way to approach it at the outset. You know, we don't know who's going to be the exceptional responder at the beginning of treatment, so I hope everyone is. And then you, you just go forward and, and you see where, where things go over time with treatment. So where I was going with the, you know, prognosis in general is not as good as we'd like it to be, is really to kind of steer our conversation more towards research and clinical trials. Because as we often talk about on this show, that's really pushing the standard of care and trying to discover new therapies that are better than what we have today. So tell us about some of the exciting research that's going on in the field and some of the clinical trials that are out there that might provide new hope for patients who have primary brain tumors. Right. So the there is a lot of excitement in the field, and um, there's been a uh, more recognition of brain tumors with uh, notable individuals getting brain tumors, like most notably John McCain recently passing away from GBM. So there's a lot of different types of products in development. Something that I'm um, pretty excited about is some types of viral treatments, either like viral or virus damage to tumors or a viral gene therapy that can impact tumors. There are several products that are in development. I, I had mentioned the Duke polio virus treatment, which is still in a mid-stage of development. There's another product called Tocogen TOCA 511, which is in late-stage clinical development. In fact, that trial has um, been run and results are uh, hopefully expected next year to know if it was if it's effective or not. And there are se like several other viruses that um, seem like they could be promising in development. So beyond that, there's also vaccines that are being looked into. There's several vaccine products and then other drugs to try to stimulate the immune system to attack the tumor. So immunotherapy is becoming common with other cancer types, particularly lung cancer and melanoma. For brain tumors, understanding of the brain tumor immune system and immune microenvironment is ongoing. The currently available immunotherapy drugs are not very effective. They don't, they don't seem to be effective. Clinical trials are being done with those products, but more research is going into kind of next-generation immunotherapy. And then there is a lot of hope that that uh, strategy will be helpful. So I want to take this conversation back to the viruses. How exactly would a virus help us to kill off a brain cancer? Because most of our listeners, when we think about viruses, we're thinking about either viruses that cause like getting a cold, or we talk a lot on this show about viruses that cause cancer, like HPV. So how does a virus actually fight a cancer? Right. So it turns out in GBM, the tumor secretes hormones and factors that turn off the immune system in the brain right around where the, the GBM is growing. In the, the rest of the brain, um, outside of the GBM, the, brain, the immune system still functions normally. And the patient's body, the immune system functions normally. So if a surgeon 
injects a virus into the brain tumor, the virus can replicate and grow within the tumor. But then once it tries to spread into healthy brain or the bloodstream, the immune system can fight it off and knock it back. So in that way, we can take advantage of the brain tumor or GBM being kind of this um, reduced immune you know, immunity environment and have viruses replicate there, damage or kill brain tumor cells, and then also stimulate the normal immune system to go in, recognize the tumor as a foreign substance and like become activated against it. So the virus uh, will replicate there uh, because there's no immune system there. But then how does the immune system go in after the virus has replicated and gotten rid of the cancer? How does the immune system go in and get rid of the virus? Uh, the vi- well, there are, the immune system has ways to destroy viruses. Um, if the virus goes into the bloodstream, um, the normal immune system should be able to hold it back. So even um, even in that location, so even in that location, say you had a GBM where the immune system is deficient in that area around the tumor. Once the virus goes in there and starts replicating, the immune system is going to know, oh, there's virus in my brain. I have to go and kill that off. Yes, too. that's what is supposed to happen. So inflammation will come on in that area. Where the, you know, in the region of the brain tumor, that could be beneficial and and additionally kill tumor cells. It also could be a problem if it creates a lot of swelling in the brain and that can cause worsening neurological disabilities or or make things worse. So there's uh, kind of yin and yang of immunotherapy or viral treatment to brain tumors. Dr. Nicholas Blondin is an assistant professor in clinical neurology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.